Evening, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Crack and open your Bibles. Ephesians 2 is where we're at. This is one of those, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, by the way, I'm Tom and I do hope to be able to chat afterwards. This is one of those passages that when we come to, we remember that, that it's the Bible that sets our agenda for our learning. It's the Bible that is the Word of God and we come to it to be transformed. We come to it to, to as, as faithful Bible studyers, we ask the questions of the Bible that the Bible is asking of itself. We don't so much just come to the Bible and say, here's my issues, here's, my, here's our, our modern day or our uh, uh, postmodern sort of situations or issues, and why don't we all come to the Scripture and see if we can force a, uh, an answer out of it. Rather, we come to the Scriptures and just says, what does it say? What is its questions? What is its uh, topics and arguments? And we're going to sit underneath it and seek to understand it and, and grow from it. And I say all of that because... Tonight's topic is sort of a, a question that I'm going to guess you didn't spend a lot of time worrying about this week, and, and, and that's okay because we're studying it now, but, but the question of this text is, what is the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile? Now, now, probably none of us were losing sleep over that, and probably none of your mates were, were asking you that uh, throughout the week uh, over the water bubbler talk in the office, but this is a pressing, pressing issue in the New Testament. This is, in fact, the, I believe, the pressing issue that the early church had to contend with was the Judaizing heresy and, and question. Now, if you're not familiar with what <coughs> that was, <coughs> pardon me, that was the, the, the question or the, the heresy that was teaching people that if you're born a Gentile, you need to be circumcised and you need to go through certain Jewish uh, rituals and practices and rites and ceremonies in order to then have the real salvation. It's still alive and well today. There are still these versions or sects of Christianity that try and apply Old Testament law heavy-handed onto Christians, but, but this was one of the, the main heresies, the main topics of argument in the early church. In fact, it became the source of one of the, of the majority of the persecution that Paul and the apostles received. It was, it was not actually mainly the Gentiles that were, that were marching through the Gentile world seeking to rat out the Christians and weed them out, it was in fact primarily the Jews who had the a vendetta against these this sect, this 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 uh, this cult within Judaism called the Way, the the Christians who were saying these crazy things about the Messiah, etc., etc. It was it was them who instigated the punishment against the church through the Gentile leaders. It was this question, in fact, that that in, uh, that uh, initiated the very first church global council that was ever had, which was in Acts chapter 15, when all the elders, all the uh, uh, missionaries even came, all of the apostles gathered in Jerusalem to ask the question, what is required of Gentile non-Jewish believers? As they come into the church, what do they have to have done to them, if anything? It was a main pressing question because it really gets to the heart of the gospel. Now you're going to see tonight, even as we we seek to answer this, what may seem like a strange or irrelevant or, or antiquated racial question, when we seek to answer it, we're actually going to be getting, by the words of Paul, straight into the very guts and the heart of the gospel. So look at Ephesians 2, verse 11 through uh, 18, uh, 19 is where we're gonna, going to be going to. So here now, here now, friends, the word of the one true living God. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And he came and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. May God bless the reading of his own powerful word in our midst this evening. Well, it's, it's this part that, that we go into the, uh, this, this first section, verse 11 and 12, and we consider what really was the Gentiles' alienation from God in their previous state. So, so, so we, we shouldn't get into such a way of thinking as we sort of maybe hear that passage on surface level and we reconsider, maybe you recall back to Co- the book of Colossians when we asked a similar question there and, and you think the gospel makes us all equal, therefore there is no benefit. There never was a benefit in being a Jew as according uh, compared to being a Gentile. At that point, Paul would stop you and say, no, 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 absolutely not. There was real, true, experiential downfalls to being a Gentile in the old world, and there were real, true benefits to being a Jew in the old covenant system. And now he goes in, in verse 11 and 12 here, and he talks about the real matter of fact uh, 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 detriment that it was to belong to a Gentile race. Now, verse 11 is in fact just nicknames. He basically, I, I don't know how many of you guys played sport, currently play sport, wherever in a team. So I played rugby and I did wrestling and uh, tried my hand at boxing a little bit. And when I was in rugby, we had all guys, all the mates that played down at Sunnybank uh, uh, Dragons Rugby Club, all the guys had different nicknames for everybody else on the team. And I would get cancelled in a second. I wouldn't let it happen, but, but I would, if I was to tell you what they were, most of them were racial slurs from my Islander brothers, just by the way, uh, racial slurs, most of, a lot of them had to do with people's body size, things that you're naturally pretty insecure about, right? All of, that's, that's how guys show their love and companionship to one another. My name had originally been, been Jesus because I was the only Christian on the team. I didn't like that because they would usually swear at me quite a lot and, and teaming that up with the name Jesus on the, on the field was, uh, was, was grinding on my conscience. But, but luckily for me, they changed my nickname to to Batista, the great WWE actor, wrestler, because they found out that I did Greco-Roman wrestling. I was okay with that name. He was a big dude. That was, that was pretty cool. But then when I got converted, I invited them along to my baptism at church, which is a great thing to do. One or two of them came, but they found out I go to a Baptist church. So they changed my name to Baptista. 
which I liked and actually went on to my senior jersey. I was, I was okay with that one. That, that maybe you've been used to and you've had all sorts of nicknames that get thrown around. Well, in the old world, the, the Jews and the Gentiles had nicknames for each other, had slurs that they would throw each other. And the, the, the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. Now, considering what circumcision is, the Gentiles sort of wore that as a badge of honor and went, yes, sir, and you're the circumcision. And so in this, uh, they called each other all sorts of other things. But in this passage here, in verse 11, you see him say, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, you were once, uh, who were, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called by you, the circumcision, which is made by flesh, in the flesh, by hands. He's saying, you all called each other certain things, right? You were labeled as the, the uncircumcised. And on one hand, it's as if he's saying, let's move past the labels. On the other hand, he's saying, let's get to the heart of the matter because you really were cut off. You really were actually in a state of detriment as he goes into verse 12 and says, here's the spiritual reality. Remember, whatever names you were called aren't important. Whatever happened to your body or what color you were or race you were, that wasn't ultimately important. What was ultimately important was this. Verse 12, you were cut off from or you were separated from from Christ. He's going he's gonna to be giving all of these, the, these, these uh, listings of these horrible things that are true of the Gentiles. And this first one might strike you a bit. You might think, wasn't everybody before Christ separated from Christ? Well, not in this sense, no. Because the Jews, even though the Christ had not come, they were waiting they, they were aware of the promises of the Christ. They were aware of the, of the prophecies of the Christ. They were aware of what Genesis 3, when God said to the devil, when, when there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, they were aware that there will be one, anointed one, to come to bring salvation. You could, you could kind of, one of the chief characteristics between Jew and Gentiles, the chief contrasts, is that Jews were a waiting people. They were people who were aware that God had created, there had been a fall in sin, and there would one day be certain things occurring to undo the curse. They were, they were awaiting people. When will God deliver? When will God redeem? We are, we are in the waiting, whereas Gentiles, and, and this comes up in their philosophy and their historiography and their, and their philosophy and religion, they, they had views of the world that we were simply in a cyclical um, a circle and history simply repeated itself uh, cycle to cycle. They, they weren't awaiting people. They didn't believe that the end was drawing near as we moved through God's ordained plans. They were not awaiting people. And in that sense, they were separated from Christ. They were, as he says here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And, and this is the reality that by God's own design, the old covenant kingdom, which, which we might otherwise call the commonwealth of Israel, the old covenant kingdom was a, was a relationship between Israel and God set up on the basis of many promises which set them apart as his chosen people, that they would receive the Messiah in their race, that they would be protected by God and had all of these other special blessings. That, that old covenant kingdom had in its design an exclusion of Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you could not join the kingdom unless you renounce your, your Gentileness and become, through ceremony, a Jew. Therefore, it was, it was a, 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 a single, single type of person kingdom. It was a, the old covenant kingdom of Israel excluded Gentiles. But 
But therefore, he, he says here, you who were Gentiles were strangers to the covenant of promise. You, you, weren't, you weren't familiar with the idea of a, of a suffering servant? You weren't aware of the idea of the, of the redemption day or the son of man or the atonement for sins or all of these elements of the covenants that were all culminating to, to bring together the one promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were just, you were separated from that. You, you didn't know that that was coming. You didn't even know how you got here, why you're here, uh, what to do with your sin. You were, as he sums up at the end of verse 12, you were just utterly without hope and without God in the world. You had no gospel. You, you had no, no prophecy. You, you had no hope in anything to come. You were just lost in your sin, dead in your trespasses and sins and without a gospel to hear. This is what he says of the Gentile race. They were guilty, if we draw back on Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, or remember that he says that they were guilty, they were dead, they were corrupted in their sin. They were children of, of wrath, following the devil and following the world. And here we realize they were cut off from God's people and all of his blessings therein. 13, in verse 13, we see the great turnaround that comes as he introduces the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. We're going to go through a number of things uh, from verse 13 through to 16 that the cross accomplished. What did the cross accomplish? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have to realize that, that as we read that, 21st century Christians, we'll skim over that and we'll, we'll focus on, on maybe the forgiveness or we'll miss what's not there. Do you realize what is not there in that phrase, of, or in that sentence of verse 13? Can you imagine being a Jew, being a proud, an ethnically proud Jew or maybe even one of the Judaizing heretics and, and you'll hear him, a pa uh, Pastor Paul, writing here and talking about the Gentiles were far off but in Jesus... They've been brought near, and what you're waiting to hear is the, the, the through ordinances. Yeah, they were far off. They've been brought near by circumcision. Come on, Paul, you've got to list the things they came near through by circumcision, by the washing, by the ceremonies, by the, by the... What did they come near through? And the only thing that Paul lists in this sentence, the one thing that brings somebody from afar off, dead in sin, to nearby and acceptable in God's sight, is the blood of Jesus. That's it. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, he says his name twice, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Add additional plus nothing. Not plus circumcision, not plus a, a, a baptism ritual, not plus changing your name to a Jewish name, plus nothing. While you are still physically far off from the temple, physically outside of the land of Israel, though you've never met a Jewish fella in all of your life, if you have Jesus and by his blood you are washed clean of sin, then you are in the covenant. What an amazing, stark and somewhat insulting thing for a Judaizer to hear at this moment. But of course, for the Jews who love the gospel, for those who, like Paul, had come to embrace it for all of its gracious power, they were amening this in their souls. But look at verse 14. The second thing that the cross did, firstly, it brought Gentiles near. Secondly, it makes us equally one. 
Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Right now, again, if, if you're a Jew and you're near to God, and the Gentiles are far off from God, and then the Gentiles get an upgrade so that they're now near God, then can you just imagine what's going to happen to you, the Jew? You're going to go from near to, to nearer or to nearest, like something. If they get such an upgrade, what's going to happen to us, the people at the front of the line? And Paul's telling them, there is no front of the line. You come together and become one. There's one person in the line. The church, there's one person in the line. Christ, there's one person in the line. The body called the church, and you're either in it or out of it. That now is the important demarcation of whether you are near or far. If the Jew, this is what Calvin said. He said, it, it, speaking of uh, if there was uh, some, some prideful or some, so, some uncomfortable Jews sitting in Ephesus at this moment, he says, if the Jews wish to enjoy peace with God, they must have Christ as their mediator. Obvious. But Christ will not be their peace in any other way than by making them one body with the Gentiles. Therefore, unless the Jews admit the Gentiles to fellowship with them, they have no friendship with God. See what he's saying? He's, he's saying that the Jews were, were welcome to reject the Messiah if they wanted but they did not have the authority to reject and deny entrance to the Gentiles themselves. They had to come and with Jesus Christ receive the body of the Gentiles as well, or they had no part in God. Do, do, you, do you hear the, the themes of the prodigal son parable that Jesus told coming through here? Often we only tell a part of the parable because we, we are sort of making a, a, a big emphasis on the prodigal son, the, the son that goes away, the son that is far off, the son that goes into sin, and, and we tell the story simply focusing on the father's gracious love towards those who have gone out, who, who he willingly, lovingly welcomes back. But the end of the parable, which is really the climax, Jesus' main point with this parable, is in fact the older brother's response. Now, it helps if you realize that this parable, in its, in its uh, uh, most basic application, is in fact Jesus telling the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in this new covenant era. It's the same topic. Jesus says that, that the, the younger brother was away, he was dead, he was dead in his sin, he was far off, swimming with the pigs, right? And we go, yeah, okay, we need to understand, that's the Gentiles. Now, as they're welcomed back in, if the older brother... The Jews now say, as the older brother in the parable said, if they go, you know, I never walked away. I wasn't actually ever far off. I, I was always nearby. And like the older brother in the parable, say in their heart, I won't go into the celebration as long as he's there. Then that son has no welcome into the party at all. That's, the, that's what Calvin's saying. That's what Paul is trying to get across. That's what Jesus was saying, that there is only one father. And the father will throw the party of celebration of salvation from sin for all. But if the Jew wants to come in with the condition that he's at the front of the line, with the condition that the younger brother, the Gentiles, are still further back than him, then that will be the stumbling block that does not allow them entrance into the gospel. He says here in verse 14, is the next thing that the cross did. The cross brought near the Gentiles. The cross has made us one with the Jews. Thirdly, he has also broken down the wall, verse 14. Broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility. Right? A part of the Old Covenant kingdom, a part of the Old Testament law, by God's own design, was, was a conceptual wall that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. But on top of the conceptual one, there was also, in fact, a very physical one. If you were to go to Jerusalem while the temple still stood, any Gentile would be able to come into the, the court of the Gentiles, but then, as they walk up to the, to the nearness of the temple, there would, in fact, be another wall behind which only the Jewish people could go, and then another wall that only the men could go, and another wall that only the priests could go. But on this huge wall separating the Jews and the Gentile, this 1.5-meter stone wall, so thick, they had these big welcoming placards that said, any Gentile that, that trespasses, will be to blame for his own swift execution. How's, how's that for a church welcome sign? Just right on the front door. You pass this threshold, you're dead. Those signs have been excavated and found in the ruins of what became the, the Jerusalem War. And, and, and so that's the mindset that they had in place. Now, now, here's what's also just a little bit funny. Where's Paul writing the letter to the Ephesians from? House arrest in Rome. What was the reason that he first got arrested and what was his first accusation by the Jews in Jerusalem that got him arrested? It was that he had taken an Ephesian Gentile in past that wall. Here's what I'm saying. Not only is that extremely personal now for Paul as he's talking to the Ephesians, speaking about that wall, but also if what he says is true, then why was he able to be arrested? If that wall is broken down, then how in the world was he arrested on the accusation, though he didn't really do it, the accusation that he trespassed it with a Gentile? The reality is that Paul's not talking about that little stone thing in Jerusalem. He doesn't mind that that physical one is still standing because the true spiritual dividing wall has been broken down. The, the physical one would eventually break down. And in AD 70, God would send the Romans in to destroy the Jerusalem temple, including that wall. That would come down. But the, 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 the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile did not come down in AD 70. It came down in AD 30 when Jesus bled on the cross. That's why verse 14 says that in his body he tore down the wall of hostility. It was in his death that when he opened up the, the door of salvation, he opened it up to all and therefore destroyed what we then see next in verse 15. In his death, he destroyed the, the laws and the ordinances. Look at what verse 15 says. Jesus tore down that dividing spiritual wall. How? By dying. And, and what is it that his dying accomplished so as to do that? Verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus, uh, when Paul here is speaking about the wall, the reality is that that wall, that conceptual division between Jew and Gentile, was encoded in every line of the Old Testament Israelite law. The wall was symbolically built by all of these commandments, and the commandments stretched to everything. They, they spoke of the foods the Jews were allowed to eat so as to divide them from the Gentiles. The places they were allowed to go, dividing them from the Gentiles. The lands they were to inherit, to divide them from the Gentiles. The clothes they wore, everything, all the, the worship rituals and everything, was, was, it was embedded in the ceremonial law so as to divide them from the Gentiles. 
Jesus is say, uh, Paul is saying here that in Jesus' death, he tore down the commandments that propped up that wall. Now, any keen reader of the New Testament is probably at this point saying, in your heart, but hey, Pastor Paul, what about Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think, do not even think, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here's Paul saying, no, in Jesus' death, he actually did abolish the law and commandments expressed through ordinances. So what are, we, what are we to think? Well, first of all, we recognize that Scripture interprets Scripture and never does Scripture contradict itself. That's a basic Christian conviction. God cannot lie, neither can his word. What we realize is this, Jesus was saying of the moral law, that is that that division of the law of God, which is moral and is eternal and was in place since the creation of the world, which is in fact just an imprint of his own holiness and nature, uh, which he encoded in the Ten Commandments, that moral law, well, it's impossible to abolish it. Because to abolish it would it be to, in fact, destroy God's own sense of internal justice. That's never what God is ever seeking to do, destroy the moral law. That's impossible. God, Jesus was saying, I did not come to destroy the moral law, nor did I come to destroy the ceremonial system of ordinances until I have fulfilled it. So here's, here's Jesus' two-pronged purpose, was to come and fulfill the moral law and keep it, forever, and then to come and fulfill the ceremonial law, and then having fulfilled it, to destroy them. That's what Paul is saying, that once Jesus had fulfilled all of the purposes of the shadows, right, the, the temple and the lamb sacrifices and the sprinkled blood and the food things and the, and the bread and all that stuff that we read in the old covenant, Jesus, he put it on like a cloak, and we realize Oh, it was waiting for him. He's the one that it all belonged to. It was shaping. It was, it was supposed to look like him. He came, he fulfilled them, and then threw that jacket off into the fire so that we never go back to the shadow. Look at what Colossians 2 verse 17 says. Paul says, those things, those legal requirements, Colossians 2 17, these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow was in the law of the ordinances, the ceremonial law. But those things, having awaited Jesus' coming, since he has now come and fulfilled it all, they can easily pass away without any concern or worry. They have fulfilled their purposes. And so verse 15 says here that he has abolished the law of commandments, not set it aside for a time, but abolished it entirely. That Those law and commandments expressed in the ordinances so that he may create in himself one new man. God, God was very used in the, in the Old Testament. He, it was his, it was his uh, 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 mode of operation to deal with, with two men. You know, all of creation could really be split down, not quite the equal middle, but right down the middle between Jew and Gentile. And Gentiles were outside of his purposes until they became Jews, but Jews were the ones receiving the blessing. But now, 
Paul is telling us. In the gospel of Jesus, in his death on the cross, he has gotten rid of all those temporary laws. Now, now he reconciles us both to God as one new man. He doesn't deal with Jew and with Gentile. He now deals with Christ and whoever is in him. He doesn't anymore deal with Jew and Gentile. He deals with the church and all those who by faith are in that corporate gathering of the church. This is to make, to, to, not, to not ever tell you, right? I need to say this. I won't, I won't name names and I won't, I won't go on a rant, but this is not the same thing as unhitching the Old Testament. This is not the same thing as saying you don't need to go and read, you don't need to go and study, you don't need to understand that old, antiquated, uh, outdated stuff that you'll find, you know, left of Matthew. You don't need to worry about that anymore. That is not what we're saying. What we're simply saying is that to understand the covenants of promise, to understand the purposes of God in the old covenant, is to arrive at Jesus and see the fullness. And therefore, Paul is now saying, and to realize that there is no longer division between Jew and Gentile. The whole Old Testament was pointing to the Lord Jesus. And he has reconciled us to God. Look at verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God. It is, it is one thing to speak of this reconciliation that God has now, God has now brought apart, in the, uh, brought, brought together in this horizontal sense. That the Jews who despise the Gentiles and the Gentiles who despise the Jews, that they are now one in the same church and in the same spiritual family and in the same group and household of God. It's one thing to say that they are now friends and they are now brothers and sisters and all of that, but it is entirely another thing to say what he just said in verse 16. It probably was lost on us as we skimmed over it. Read it again. He has... Uh, that he might reconcile us both to God. The reconciliation between the races of Jew and Gentile is nothing compared to reconciliation between God and man. Do, do you know what reconciliation assumes? You know, Luther used to say, you don't, you don't reconcile friends. I don't come up to a, to a loving husband and wife at the peak of their happiness and tell them, hey, I'm here to reconcile the things you go, God. They don't need mediation. I don't come up to two best friends enjoying a holiday and try and reconcile them. It's the, it's the enemies that need reconciling. So that wherever we see in Scripture that God is reconciling himself to us and us to himself, we must realize underneath there is the assumption of enmity, of warfare, of hostility, and in fact hatred. That our, our natural relationship we learned last week is that we are children under God's wrath. That our natural relationship is that we belong to God only for judgment. That we are sinners, we are guilty, we are condemned, and God therefore is angry towards us every day. But in Jesus. But, but in the cross of Jesus, there is the God-man, the one perfect man, the Lamb of God who was sent to the world in order to be slain for the sins of the world. In Jesus Christ, there is the anger of God concentrated on him instead of us. In Jesus Christ's cross, there is the wrath of God directed to him instead of us. There is the, the piercing fury of God for our sins that was sent to him to suffer instead of us so that there might be in the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the throne that God might then be able to relate to us in an act of reconciliation where we become friends, where we were once enemies. 
where we become children, where we were once hated by the Lord God. That reconciliation is the mystery and the power of the gospel. And he says here in verse 16 that it comes through the cross. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Remember that old hymn? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Well, the song that we sing here at Hope. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. The, the cross of Jesus Christ is all of our religion. If we do not know Christ and him crucified, if we do not preach Christ and him crucified, if we do not continually consider, speak, worship God for Christ and him crucified, we have no religion worth speaking of. The cross, the bloody cross where Jesus died for sinners is where you see God's love, God's grace, God's majesty, God's glory. And therefore, he killed the hostility. End of verse 16. Thereby killing the hostility. He comes back to the relationship between Jew and Gentile here. It, it, it's common for this verse or this sort, of, this sort of passage to kind of be the, the places where people go to talk about racial reconciliation between, between people in the church and outside of the church and in society, you know, black and white tensions or Asian and other Asian tensions or racial tensions between people. And that is to really just shortcut the mark. You can't come here and start saying, just as Jews and Gentiles were divided, so also we need to get along because that's what the cross accomplished. In fact, that's shortcutting it. Because if we think theologically with God's categories, there's never been, there has never ever been a division between races as deep and profound as Jew and Gentile. Nothing else compares. They didn't just not get on. God divided them indefinitely on purpose, for his own sake, to preach the gospel. So, so it's, no, it's far too cheap and easy to just come here and go, so there you go, get on. However, at this verse, where, at this phrase where we see Paul say, therefore it destroys the hostility, we see him really coming down for application. Where there, where there used to be hostility, enmity, slurs, despising of Jew to Gentile and Gentile to Jew, now that hostility can be put to bed, and that also applies to the Gentile-Gentile enmities. This is where we can now start applying and thinking, well, well, if that body of, of, of enmity, the, the Jew-Gentile, can be put down, then, then so also should and must every racial enmity and hostility in God's people, the church, be put down. We ought not have, have despising uh, 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 hatred towards anybody for any ethnic racial reason, because here in the cross, Jesus has killed the hostility. There is no such thing as the racial church of one district, the, the black church, the Asian church, that in, that in this church we're actually going to start dividing up uh, according to not so much generations, but actually we're going to have Asian Sunday school, and we're going to have white church on after this, as, as if God is relating to humanity now through Christ to multiple different people. He's not. He said he has one man. He has one body. There is one unified people that he has brought together through the cross, and that is simply the church. Multicolored, multi-ethnic, multiracial as it is, this is the glory. It, it doesn't mean, of course, 
It doesn't mean that, that we ignore or try and downplay or try and remove ethnic differences. That in, in the creational sense, it still shows God's glory, all the different kinds of colors and features and, and, uh, and, and cultures and things like that. And, and on another hand, it is a part of God's glory that he's bringing all of these different people, groups and types and colors and languages into the self-same heaven. We'll be, we'll be all represented there. But in terms of our access to God, in terms of your ability to, to be a church member, to understand the gospel, to be embraced as a full-blooded member of the new covenant, your race is entirely and utterly irrelevant. This is the reality of the gospel. And so as we look at the last few verses, I just want to uh, really ask the question, if, if that's what the gospel is, that's what the gospel means for the Jew-Gentile relationship, what then is gospel ministry? What is the essence of gospel ministry and, and a gospel church? Look at verse 17. Paul says, and he came. He's speaking of Jesus. This Jesus who died, who reconciled, who brought us to God as one man, as one body, as one group, as one church, he also appeared. He, he arrived. He came. And he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Now, there's no reason at all to think that Jesus appeared to the Ephesians bodily. He, he never during his, his earthly ministry ever went there. Neither is there any reason to assume that what Paul's saying is that the Ephesians had witnessed Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. That's not what he means to say when he says that Jesus preached to you. Rather, he has such a high view of the means of grace. He has such a high view of the preaching of the word of God. And when ordinary people take the gospel and speak it to their community, he has such a high view of that that he simply says, when you were doing that, Jesus was speaking through you. When I came, Paul is saying, and I preached day after day and hour after hour in the city of Ephesus so that there was widespread revival. Do you know who really was the, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor, the, the ultimate church planter and preacher who was standing there with me and doing the proclaiming? It was Jesus. What an amazing, amazing thing this is to think that when you're handing tracts out, you're answering the questions of your coworker uh, in the lunch lunchroom when when you're talking to your sibling or to your your child or, or you're talking to your unbelieving loved one and you're you're sharing the gospel. It is Jesus Himself who is in that moment preaching to them. When you're when you're coming here and you sit down in a pew, we open the Bible and we explain the truth of it and we hear by faith. It is the spiritual reality that it is in fact Jesus Himself appearing to feed the sheep through the words of his Bible. That is such a, a glorious view. And so when we think of the local church and the gospel ministry of our evangelism and our preaching and our Bible studies, our fellowship groups, what those things are is Jesus himself coming in our midst to preach to us. Second implication of all of this is that if the gospel is all that he said here, that with equality to Jew and Gentile, then that means that any true gospel-believing church will offer a gospel of equality. Sounds a bit socialistic. I'm going to rephrase that. They will preach the equal gospel to all races. He says here in verse 17 that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off, symbolizing Gentiles, 
and preach to you peace who were near, symbolizing the Jews. In other words, Jesus didn't come and say to the Gentiles, you're forgiven, and say to the Jews, you're okay as you are. He didn't come and preach peace to the Gentiles and kick out the Jews. He says to everybody, every color, every division who used to be divided, now he says to us all the self-same gospel, the gospel preached of peace between God and man through the cross of Jesus. Therefore, every ministry of the church, every true church, every preaching, every sermon of the church offers to one and the same to everybody who hears the self-same gospel of peace between man and God. Thirdly, gospel ministry provides access through the Spirit to God. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What, what gospel ministry is, as we, we draw near to God through the means of grace, as we consider the gospel, as we preach it, as we edify one another in our common uh, study of the word of God, what is happening is that each of us are engaging in and enjoying the access to Yahweh himself through the Spirit. There is something so significant as a church sets itself around the means of grace, it is not merely us learning from a book us hearing the words of gurus, but rather we need to see the spiritual union we now have, church with Christ, the bride with her husband, that as we draw near, we are receiving true and full access through Jesus Christ by the Spirit to the Father. And lastly, this kind of gospel, this gospel and true gospel ministry declares that we are all equal in the one kingdom. Look at verse 19. He says to the Gentiles, so then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, that's one, with the saints and members of the household of God, that's two. He, he's using the, the citizens language to say that you used to be of the kingdom of darkness and now you're in the, the new covenant kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. You are equal kingdom members. And then he's using the language of household to speak of the family, which is the church. You are all equally members of the home of God, of the family of God in the kingdom. Therefore, the only requirement, the, the only condition that there exists anymore for citizenship, for membership inside the new covenant kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, is this question. Have you had faith? That is the one, not, not have you gone through this rite or activity or have you belonged to this family or have you learned this much or have you not committed these certain sins? The one question, the simple question is, have you considered Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross and his resurrection into glory? Have you realized that there is the salvation of any sinner that comes and in that you have trusted, you have rested, and you have believed God's promises for him to save you. If you have, then you, for that reason, and that reason alone, for Christ and Christ alone, you are in the kingdom. Fellow citizenship, fellow members of God's own household. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the for the good news of the gospel that, that comes through Paul's, Paul's letter here in the context of the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. 
We, we understand and, uh, that, that there was this intentional division all throughout the old covenant, but we see that in the part of the glory of the new covenant, part of the glory of the gospel is that Jesus reconciles us to God as one family. He brings back together what was divided. He, brings, he, he spreads far beyond merely the Jews what is now a blessing of ownership to God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the words of Paul. We thank you for the reality that we can, we can claim these promises as yes and amen in Jesus. Access to you by faith reconciliation to you through the cross, the removal of division between Jew and Gentile because of his body being pierced, and the, the peace that we have with you being drawn near to you because of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. Father God, I pray that where there are, where there are people who do not yet have faith, who are not yet cleansed by your blood, who are still far off and dead in sin and corrupt in their nature, Father God, we pray that you would do the great and merciful, gracious miracle of raising them to spiritual life now so that they might place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be transferred from the devil's world into the, the, the son's kingdom, that they might become members and citizens with us in the household and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.